0: Okay. okay. So anyway, Michael, it's good to see you again, and that you you've got a question about the lower three fetters. So go for it.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. My my questions always kind of come with a bit of context. <laughs> um. Okay. But it was I was reflecting on the lower three fetters in a in a way that I I had have ne- I haven't before. Um not just from the conversations i've had with you but from watching videos of you you talking to your other students mm-hmm. um and um just realizing how significant uh it is and how practical it is uh to to let go of those lower three fetters so the first one i was just i was just talking about was um how um limiting it is how uh, the what I think identity view is in the lower three fetters, in that when we talk to people or you talk to people, I right? And I notice myself about changing, you say, Well, okay, let maybe tell somebody to relax and they'll say, Well, I can't relax. That's not who I am. Or you tell somebody, You know, don't worry, be happy. And they'll say, Well, I'm a, I'm a person who has anxiety. I can't do that. Or, You know, hey, how about you? Uh, oh, I, I know this person you could talk to who might make you feel better. Oh, talking to somebody wouldn't help me, right? So I've I've kind of gotten the sense like that when the Buddha talks about identity view and the way that you kind of talk about it, um, that that's kind of the type of identity view that 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 restricts you from change. And then and the way that you talk about um, attachment to rites and rituals, very practical yes. way.
0: And you can also see how difficult it is then for someone to get over that first uh, fetter. A personality view when mm-hmm. everything around them especially the priest and those who are trying to control them will try to make sure that oh you can't change i'm a ceo and you're a gardener or you're a sweeper and it's mm-hmm. going to stay that way you can't be ceo all right that uh, but Where that comes from, that is so difficult to deal with at its lowest level, is in religion. Because both the Brahmins and the Christians uh, are telling the same story, just in a different uh, format. In the sense of, uh, in Hinduism, uh, and in much of the, let us say, ordinary Buddhist mindset, is, is that we can't change because the situation that we're in now was determined from the past. Mm-hmm. And we can't control the past, therefore we can't control the present moment. However, you can do enough on, in the present moment to make your future a little brighter and so this is the background for alms and and uh, building temples and giving donations and all of that kind of stuff that if you pay money now you can get some future reward but you can't change yourself or your circumstances now okay that is the biggest lie that humanity has ever perpetrated on humanity you can you can even go so far as to carve to call it conservatism. Mm-hmm. That that is the conservative mentality. What is that? Is that I've got it and you don't, and I'm going to keep it and you won't. Mm-hmm. That's conservatism. Okay, it's based upon a, um, uh, uh, a zero sum game or a win lose situation, and that. Uh, uh, because it's been in the religions, as and all of the mommies believe the religions. We teach; they teach that to the kids, without even having to express it openly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it winds up in the situation of, oh, well, that's who you
1: are. Mm-hmm.
0: That's just who you are. It. This
1: is who I am. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, and our vocabulary is full of it. Like boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. leopards can't change their spots the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree i mean these, these <laughs> things just they just keep going on and on and on which basically says no you can't
1: mm-hmm. and it's connected to the attachment to rules and conventions and things like that. that's one like of you the said,
0: right the boys will right. be
1: boys like you might a man a person or a man might feel like oh you know Ashamed of themselves because, like, you cried or something. Okay, oh, now I'm not a man, right? Like, you've broken a rule that's been ingrained ingrained in you. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, uh, I'm a I'm a high school English teacher, and we have this kind of concept of growth mindset, growth mindset versus fixed mindset, and fixed mindset is sort of like the old way of looking at students, like. They can't change, essentially, like some kids are good at math, some kids are good at English, some kids have good study habits, some kids don't wear a growth mindset, as you see it, like them as like dynamic and changeable.
0: Actually, um, that can get fixed early. That, in fact, um, I, I remembered exactly what happened with me, that one teacher in the second grade, her name was Mrs. Brown, by the way. And she gave me an outstanding, never got an outstanding since then. And, and all of the, uh, there's either A, B, Cs, or Ds, but an outstanding, that is what put me into mathematics. It happened in the second grade. All right. That in fact, if the teachers in the first and second grade would praise the students, mm-hmm. that will take them out of that fixed mentality into the I can do it, I can change
1: yeah I've been applying that um, What you talk about the nurturing ego versus the critic ego I've been applying that to myself but also with my students like trying to use like nurturing language to motivate them and it's it works like magic
0: (laughs) that is the magic
1: yeah (laughs) So I've been I've been enjoying that a lot. There's I I, um, like I have like a whole list of things that I've been like, wow, this really applies to a lot.
0: (laughs) Right. Like every every breath, everything you do Mm -hmm. is influenced by our mental attitude. Which is either the attitude of a loser or the attitude Mm -hmm. of a winner. and, yeah, and that, that loser's attitude starts off progressive and over time it changes to the loser's attitude of conservatism but both the conservative it, and the liberal is a loser's position
1: and that and that focus on attitude it almost feels like attitude precedes everything else you know like even preceding contact right because now that I'm practicing this attitude of the winner, as you call it, um, when like something makes contact with the mind, like let's say an old habit of irritation makes contact with the mind. Now, since my attitude is leaning towards looking at this, this next present moment and, you know, clearing the mind and creating a wholesome state, instead of diving into that irritation and becoming that irritation, now my mind is just clearing up right away because I have this, Precondition of that right attitude that you're talking about, um, that is there already, sort of before the old habit comes up. Mm -hmm. At least, at least when it's working really well. (laughs) Sometimes, get you know. I'm really glad that you
0: have seen that or discovered it for yourself. uh, That in fact it is quite an important quality, but that most that attitude thing. Let's, let's talk about it like this. Imagine, or the analogy is a thought is same as a tree. Not the tree standing, but the thought is when the tree falls down and hits the ground. Okay, there's a, um, an action that's taken or something that creates that thought. And then the thought or the tree is going to fall. The thought's going to make contact. Okay, mm-hmm. it's going to slam the ground. Okay, where does the tree slam the ground? The answer to that is the way uh, that, let us say, the initial cuts with a chainsaw or an axe, the guy who's cutting the tree down wants it to fall in a certain direction, and so he undermines it there so that it will fall in the direction that it's desired. And on YouTube, you can see an awful lot of tree fallings where the tree didn't go where they wanted it to go. It went on a house or a fence or a car or something else um, because they weren't watching closely what they were doing. So if we can have this analogy that the thought that falls was already leaning in that direction. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that's how the underpinning was set up which is the attitude. So our attitude then depends upon what kind of thoughts we're going to have. That's how important they are. But but it is... Um, it, it, the, the attitude interferes so fast that we're not aware of it. That, that in fact our attitude affects our thoughts. Well... What we can do, then, is understand that our thoughts also affect our attitudes.
1: It kind of makes me think of the the Honeyball honey Sutra, um, you know, what one thinks that one, or what one perceives that one thinks, what one thinks that one mentally proliferates. It's like that mental proliferation can go in one of two directions, depending on the the sort of precondition of the mind, like the attitude of the mind, the leaning of the mind, right, like... Mm-hmm. Um, like at that moment of perception, that sort of bubbling stream of causality can go in one direction or the other dependent upon which way the, the mind is already leaning. That's one thing that I was thinking about today when I was um, when I was thinking about this right attitude. Because I keep coming back to the right attitude when I, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm forgetting what to do, I keep coming back to that. It seems to, for me to be the most effective reminder.
0: Uh-huh. Um okay we can say then that once um, a a wheel is set in motion, Mm -hmm. then the proliferation of the mind is like that the wheel continues to spin in that direction. Okay, sort of like we've got Mm -hmm. this concept of uh, clockwise and counterclockwise. Mm -hmm. But, But what we don't realize is that clockwise and counterclockwise are still a point of view that you can take a clock and see that in fact the arms are ticking around the face of the clock clockwise. That's why they call it clockwise. Is the three wow. goes then down to the four in a clockwise position. But if you take the clock and turn it against the wall, now you may not. It may not be transparent. But if it was, now the clock goes counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Just like you can think of then the um, the earth goes around the sun, and they almost always demonstrate it visually as going counterclockwise. Hmm. But they could have just as easily done the arc from the other direction, because who knows what's up and who knows what's down in outer space. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But the point is is that it will continue to go in the the same direction, though. Once the Earth starts off in Mm -hmm. this direction around the sun, whether we call it clockwise or counterclockwise, depending upon our perception of it as Mm -hmm. an observer, it will continue to go in that direction. It doesn't stop and then go retrograde the way that they were trying to figure out the planets at one time. They call them going retrograde. Mm -hmm. No, they were always going in the same direction. The perspective of where we were on the planet Earth is what made them look like they were going backwards. It was because Mm -hmm. we were going forward in a certain way that made the other things (laughs) appear to go backwards. (laughs) Yeah. So, if we can get it from that perspective, then we can take a whole kind of a different approach. In the sense of recognizing that, yes, it is the attitude, because not only does, does the attitude tell us where uh, to, uh, to chop at the bottom of the tree so that it'll fall in a certain direction, we can also recognize that that, uh, that perspective or that attitude that we have or that view that we have can also be moved and changed around. That we don't have to see the earth going around the sun counterclockwise. We can change our perspective and say, you know, and now it's going around it clockwise. If we can do that begin to change our perceptions this way, then mm-hmm. that means that we can change this perception. We can change our attitude. That's profound, that we yeah, can that's...
1: change. That's the biggest thing that i've taken from these conversations um i've thought about it in so many different ways um i was thinking about the fact that perception is is the part of the the the, the mind that that selects from everything that's pouring into the senses you know you got 40 uh-huh. million and bits part of, of information the
0: filtering, and part of the filtering of the perceptions is our attitude
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay
1: because we, we 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 filter the present with our attitude, right? Like one person could be at Disneyland and be super happy, and another person could be at Disneyland and be in a terrible mood. But we also filter our interpretation of the past. So, w- whatever way we identify ourselves, perception goes back and cherry picks and alters memories from the past in order to fit that narrative, so that we can continue to see ourselves in the way that we have conditioned. We've been conditioned to see ourselves, and then that. Attachment to that constellation of perceptions is what keeps us going in the same cycles for the rest of our lives, and I think that's what that that fetter is really about, you know.
0: Unless we unless we change.
1: Yeah, that, and then when, once you like you said, once you realize you can change, and you see how easy it is, because in this next thought moment, you can make a, a fresh choice that fetter is in a way broken because that illusion is broken that you're just this fixed thing. Like, oh, this, is this, and I, like for my, for example, with myself is, I often would tell my students like, oh, you know, I have ADHD and blah, 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 blah. You know, or anybody I'm talking to, because I tend to, I've always just thought, I've, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was in middle school and I've always used that label to explain some of my habits. But ever since I started doing this, I, I don't feel, like I don't, I don't feel the ADHD anymore. I don't feel like as scatter. I'm still talking a lot, but I don't feel as scatterbrained or whatnot. What, so kind of like,
0: what what was that diagnosis again? ADHD. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that means absolutely downright human. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> That in fact, it's it's very profitable for Mm -hmm. the medical profession to take an ordinary thing from an ordinary kid, put a diagnostic label on it, give the parents some medicines, and you're still in business.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Or another way of saying it, every kid has uh, attention disorders. That's why little Johnny's looking out the window rather than listening to the teachers because the teacher Mm is boring according to his (laughs) attitude. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I don't because I have spent so much time in great detail with these diagnostic codes, I don't count on them. In fact, the, uh, the the psychology professor profession is trying to figure out how they can get rid of them. Because because it's nothing but a money making scheme and we would someday or another like to change psychology so that it can actually begin to help people.
1: Mm -hmm. Too many labels. Mm -hmm.
0: Too many labels. So um, we actually should wear the only label that fits, human,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which is not necessarily a a superlative. Yeah, or
1: just organism.
0: (laughs) Well, it's okay to put us at the top of the, um, uh, uh, the primate chain. We can call them primates, all right? But that doesn't make us as smart as we think we are. That humanity is pretty stupid. It's in danger of clutching itself to death. Yeah, I because, guess it of, on... because of the greed and ill will and the ignorance around greed and ill will. We think, oh, I, things are dangerous when in fact they mm-hmm. are not. Okay, well, let's go get all the knives, guns, money, and protection that we can get so that we can feel safe. When in fact none of those things will make us safe. And there's the delusion. Number one, the delusion is things are dangerous. Number two, I can go buy my way into safety. Those two things are um, basic fallacies that every child comes up with because they're taught it that way from their parents. Their parents believe that, and so without actually stating it directly, we feed all of that stuff to our kids, leaving us ignorantly greedy and ignorantly fearful. We don't like things think they're dangerous okay they're harmful so when we uh begin to change what we're really changing is our attitude first we want win-win to be correct we don't want win-lose or uh, zero-sum games to be like we want win-win to be like we kind of want it even though we don't believe it we believe that win-lose is the way that the game is played mm-hmm. but we would like to see it our altruistic <laughs> nature would like to see it as a win-win situation but it's still not an attitude yet it's just kind of a um, uh, an evil desire maybe
1: <laughs> yeah that seems to be one another one of the rules that we've kind of ingested like um oh you you can't be You can't be happy all the time. That's not how life works. (laughs) You know, like. And the real answer to that is, is that
0: you're not happy all the time because that's how you work at it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) But that, Um, but that whole statement right there is projection. Because I see it this way, it must be that way. Okay, because I lie, that means that you're a liar, etc. Yeah, exactly. I'm not supposed yeah. to lie, so you're not supposed to lie either, especially not to me. And our mm-hmm. whole society is built on those little little things, about the supposed to's, rather than the realities.
1: Hence, that's uh, like it's better.
0: <laughs>
1: it's like, I'm... I you know, I, I took a I took longer to call you back this time because I was like trying to figure out what I would ask you because I every time I think of a question, I'm like, Well, that's just that question is stemming from dissatisfaction. So what should I <laughs> what would I ask? I was like, Well, maybe I could just come up with a topic of conversation. Um Well, you but, don't have um, to
0: call because you uh have a a burning question. You you can call because you're cool.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you know, I there's more to that. Let me finish with this point, and that is, is that uh, question asking and doubt mm-hmm. is a fetter, It's a hindrance. And that the worst kind or um, uh, uh, the worst time for it to happen is when we're meditating, sitting there actually wanting to practice, and the questions about how to practice come up. <laughs> the doubts about how to practice where mm-hmm. in fact the practice itself is dead easy and that means that there's only a little bit for us to know just enough and yet the human mind especially in this modern society is trained to gather knowledge we gather, yeah. we gather knowledge today the way that the hunter and gatherers went out and gathered uh, plants or like um, my
1: biggest addiction, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: or like going into the grocery store because we need milk, and we wind up coming out of the grocery store with a whole grocery cart, a hundred dollars lighter, right? Because we went gathering. That's the way that we do, and so we want to gather up and know and know and know, and mm-hmm. so this is the basis of the questions, and it's really good to get to the place that you've recognized that you know enough now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you'll never know everything, that in fact ignorance becomes the better at the end uh, when we are able to deal with the fact we'll not ever know everything. I don't need mm-hmm. to know everything. It's okay for me to make mistakes, to get the facts wrong or to not care. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all right. We don't have to get it correct or exact. What we can get it though is our correct practice so that we begin to be nurturing to ourselves and loving ourselves rather than being critical of ourselves because we've made some mistake and we don't have all the information which is where the questions come from anyway so now we're all the way back to sila Paramasa after all Mm-hmm. Our attitudes are determined by the rule systems that we keep. And in fact, uh, uh, this is a good introduction into what determines one's personality. What is personality? How do we know what a personality is? And uh, the easy way to understand it from a, the Buddhist perspective is, is that the, the personality is determined by our set of rules by our set of sila Bata paramasa, how the world is supposed to be, the ideal. Uh-huh. I am what I'm supposed to be, or I'm turning my best to live up to that and feeling failure from it. So there's actually a second quality, and that is, is that it's not only the rules themselves, but it's how we respond at the basic gut or child level to these rules.
1: So those those two fetters are basically like linked to each other, the attachment they're, to rules, the identity. They're really, view. really
0: tight together, yes. That the personality view is determined by the rules. And if one of the rules is you can't change, then mm-hmm. your personality can't change until we can dislodge that so that people can learn very slowly that, in fact, they can change, that that personality is not fixed, and that the way that we change the personality is by disregarding the rules.
1: It makes sense that this would be these two, along with doubt, would be the lower three fetters, because have you heard the joke, how many how many Dharma teachers does it take to to change a person or to change a light bulb? (laughs) Sorry.
0: No, I haven't heard that one. I assume it's a joke and I probably got my own punchline coming. So go for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how many? (laughs) It's funny. It makes me laugh every time. How many Dharma teachers does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb really has to want to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you could can, can supplement Dharma teacher with therapist, but yeah, so. Right, okay, you, you here's, can't change several if you're... here's several
0: different answers. Here's seven different answers. It takes all of them and they still can't do it. <laughs> I've got a new student, Pedro is calling. Is it okay to add him to the call?
1: Yeah, that's fine, sure.
0: Hello, Pedro. Welcome to our call. This is Michael. Oh, hello.
1: How you doing? I'm
0: Can you change your camera to uh, horizontal? There you go. There go. That looks better. Okay. So, when you joined, we were just discussing a joke. How many Dharma teachers does it take to change a light bulb? Okay, Uh, (laughs) that's adapted from an old joke about how many psychologists does it take to control uh, to change a light bulb? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that is is that it only takes one psychologist to change the light bulb, but they've all got to be there to enjoy the experience. And yeah. so how many Dhamma teachers does it take to change a light bulb? And Michael's got one answer. What is that answer, Michael?
1: Uh, it takes only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so another answer would that would would be that uh, Dhamma teachers don't know how to change light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe along with that, they don't even know how to change themselves.
1: We were essentially discussing how the ability to change is sort of the biggest leap right at the beginning, Um, getting over attachment to rules and conventions and attachment to personality. Those things that make us not change, and then realizing that we can change is like that first big leap. Um so that's where that that's where that joke kind of got introduced. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I mean uh, mm, there the comes a moment for everybody when uh, we we decide to change. and uh, then there is also how much we want to change because maybe uh, some people just want to change the house furniture but uh, somebody that uh, gets near to the Dharma maybe wants really to change the whole ecosystem of his mind and of himself, maybe also all uh, his habits. So he he really puts uh, his whole uh, uh, ecosystem of human being into the practice. Absolutely, and what you said there was actually quite revealing, people wanting to change their furniture is because they don't like that old furniture and they want some new furniture, right? <laughs> Which means the, the delusion that they're in there is I'll feel better if the furniture changes. I won't change myself. The furniture will change me for me. And uh-huh. in fact, that's one of the first levels of doubt that we have to deal with. We were talking about personality view and how uh, the personality view is determined by our set of rules. And one of the rules many people have is you can't change. Like in the Bible, it says, who are you to be good? Only God can be good. And the answer to that is <laughs> the way he acts, I can be better than him anytime. <laughs> but but people get the point is is that no they can't change uh that they need a jesus they need a savior or that we need a help we need in fact the light bulb needs the dharma teacher because the light bulb can't change itself which is another part of the or one of the last punch lines to that joke is, is that the uh, light bulb don't need no Dhamma teachers? <laughs> he just pops himself right out. So, um, sure. the the doubt, though, has many different forms, or actually three basic forms. And the first one that comes from the, um, uh, the victimhood is that the victim can't, can't change himself. The victim is, in fact, victimized because he can't change himself. If the victim could change himself, then he'd just change himself enough to where he was no longer the victim. But we are born victims. We are born helpless. We are born dependent. And society keeps each one of us there. We don't want anyone to actually grow up and be um, fully whole adult human being on their own. It's just not practiced in our society. In other words, we're, we're taught to continuously for the rest of our lives be dependent upon society. Um, one thought about that would be how humans will capture a baby wild animal Uh, And then keep it just a little while with the idea of reintroducing it back to the wild. Have you ever heard of that or seen that kind of thing that they don't just throw the animal out in the wild and let it go? They will put it into a um, kind of a controlled habitat so that it's a bit safe. But after a little while, they'll let the animal go or a wild bird. that has gotten a broken wing and we let them wheel in the house and then we throw them out, and we let them go. But with humans, we don't ever let them go. That the society wants to keep abusing. You've got to have a job. You can't just go and do what you want to for the rest of your adulthood. You've got to do what you're told to do. They're going to make sure you won't survive unless you do what you're told to do. So this kind of mentality keeps us stuck in a victim's position. And the doubt is who can I help to, or who can I get to help me because I am helpless. I need a religion. I need a preacher. I need a psychologist. I need a dharma teacher. I need meditation. I need a pill. I need a car. I need, I need, I need. And so we get into this state of needing and wanting from this victim's position. And so... The first, one of the early things that the student has to learn within Buddhism, and in fact, the whole point of the Second Noble Truth is to help them to get over that and come to the answer is, is there ain't nobody going to help you but you. Only the light bulb can change. Dharma teachers not change light bulbs. They don't know how to do that. There you go. So if we can come to that, that's a major, major change in one's attitude from, I'm going to have to do this myself. But then the next question arises, and this is the big one that most of them struggle with for quite a while. And that is the question to uh, the, the question is, am I up to the job? If I've got to change myself, And nobody else can do it for me. Can I do that? Will I be successful? Now, when we practice some forms of meditation, like the Mahasi meditation, we never get the experience of being successful ever. All we do is keep looking at the same old crap over and over and over again. It kind of gets depressing. Some people call it a dark night of the soul. But within Anapanasati, it's already built upon that change model. That's what's built into the second noble truth, is is that your greed, your ill will, and your delusion is already within your own mind. And the only way to change that is for you to change it yourself. And so that's what we begin to practice. We begin to practice making changes. What change? this thought this one thought it's what we're going to change we can't change the future we can't change our destiny we can't change our personality but what we can change is this thought and we can change the thought if we remember to change the thought and so the sati and the waking up to see what the thought is, and then the the right noble effort, these are the three points of the Eightfold Noble Path that gets us started, that will bring us then to that state of success. I can do this. And in fact, the big success comes when the student, and it's called, by the way, the first knowledge, the first noble knowledge is when the student says, no matter how obsessed, how crowded, how obstructed, how hindered my mind is, I can, in fact, clean that out and come back and see things the way that they really are. Hallelujah. That's the statement of success, that the student knows that he can change. But the reason that he knows that he can change is because he's got the confidence is based upon a lot of experience of changing it. Every time we change the mind, we should know. I was able to change it. I can do this. I can change my feelings from being fearful into being safe and secure. I can change my posture from being uncomfortable into comfortable. And then I can change my feelings into being comfortable. I can do this. And so these are the kind of positive thoughts that we'd want to foster. To have no place to go and nothing to do and the spring comes and the grass grows all by itself. Don't need my help. I can just let it go. Okay, so when we keep practicing this way, this uh, second kind of uh, doubt becomes eradicated. In the sense that we change it from doubt about can I do this or not into I can. And I will continue to. I can do it now. I can do it later. I can do it the time after that. I can keep doing it. All I have to do is remember. And I can do this. Okay. That's the second level of doubt. And the third level of doubt is the one that's stated most cleanly and clearly in the suttas. And stated this way. This is one of the quotes. Is, is that it is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Now, when I use the word the path here, what is and is not the path means that I can recognize that most of the stuff that I've been doing my whole life is not the way that I'm going to live my life. In this case, the path actually means this is how I'm going to be living each moment, or this is the method of of the moment. Every moment comes by, we will have this method. And what is the method? It's basically the Eightfold Noble Path. So it's knowledge and vision that this works and nothing else much does. And so when we come to that station, those are the three main fetters in personality view, adherence uh, to rules, regulations, that you actually create and build our personality and the knowledge and vision that I can change and that I've got the method to do that. I've got it, Eureka, the Eightfold Noble Path is the way to go. That the Buddha's method works beyond any of the others. This is the kind of attitude that we develop. Okay, so these three fetters are often known or um, let us say associated with uh, what is called the stream enterer or the Pali is the Sotapan or the Sotapana. And that what we're really talking about here, then, is, is that we begin to develop a noble mind. So when we talk about the word noble, we will assume that anybody who's gotten to the point that they know that they could clean the hindrances out of the mind because they are already gotten so good at doing that, then that, that one would be part of the group of nobles. Now, along with that um, third doubt, The eradication of that third doubt about knowledge and vision of what is and is not the past basically means also taking refuge, finally taking refuge in the Dhamma. Or this is our home port. This is home. This is where we always go. Yeah, sometimes we got to go out in the high seas, but we always make a liggety split right back into our safe harbor. Okay, this is where, uh, this is the refuge. They call it the triple gem, the three refuges. And in there we have the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And in this case, we're talking about taking refuge specifically in the Dhamma. Now, what do we mean basically about taking refuge in the Buddha is the knowledge, the vision, the understanding that we can be free from dukkha, we can come out of it, we can learn to live a satisfied life. And now we've got the Dhamma that shows us exactly how to do that. And the third item on the Triple Gym is our soulmates, our buddies, the other nobles, our friends, the ones who are around us that are practicing this same way. And so when we take refuge in the friendship of the Dhamma, having Dhamma friends and Dhamma dudes as our friends, having uh, the the knowledge of the path and what is the path and what is not the path and the knowledge that we can do this. What is it that we can do? The knowledge that I can be free from Dukkha. So these are the three gem, triple gems. Uh, I, and with this triple gem and the reduction and elimination of the first three fetters, Then is normally referred to as um, the formality of the Sotapan. Sotapan in a formal kind of way. And along with that, if the mind is already noble now, or at least much of the time it's noble, because the Sotapan is not going to be Sotapan 100% of the time, nothing is 100% of the time, not even many of us are even human 100% of the time, Sometimes I'm driftwood.
1: <laughs>
0: and And so um, we we get into taking uh, ceremonies that in fact, um, part of the ceremonies in is taking the precepts. And so they take the precepts as well as the triple gem in a ceremony. This happens every Buddha day. And why do they do these precepts? Well, the precepts actually come from the Eightfold Noble Path, right speech, right uh, action, and right livelihood. But in the Eightfold Noble Path, it's talked about in a noble way, in the sense that when the mind is noble, when the mind is free from want, then you don't want anything bad enough to go kill somebody to get it. If you don't want anything, you're unlikely to go steal it. If you don't want that girl, you're more than likely not going to molest her. Right? And if you want to keep the truth, then you're unlikely to tell a lie. So, basing the actual precepts not upon a set of rules or a set of rituals or a set of uh, ceremonies... We take them as the natural outcome from having a mind that has changed from being the victim into being a winner, into feeling good and comfortable and satisfied. But when we go to the, to the what and have these ceremonies, they will do the triple gem and take the precepts. Now, why do they do that? The answer to that is because this is symbolic of people who formally take the triple gem and take the precepts, that's the outward view or the outward version of being a soda pond. Om- almost like magically, because somebody's chanting the Pali and you repeat the Pali, you can come up to the standards of the Pali. But really, no, it has to do with changing one's mind and not repeating some um, Pali verses. So the triple gem sounds in the Pali like um Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhamam Saranam gachami, sangam Saranam Gachami, and they do it three three times. So it's dutyampi. Buddham saranam gachami dutyampi Uh, So this is actually done in ceremony with everybody uh, chanting along or in some cases just the monks doing it while the people listen. But many of the people don't even understand what the the monks are chanting. So how could this be that the monk is chanting the uh, triple gem? And people then automatically take the triple jump. Oh no, this being able to really take refuge in the Dhamma is because you're skilled at it. That most people are just lost at sea and when they think about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, that's like they're still uh, caught in at sea, but they don't even know how to get into port. To where those who have the Dhamma are the ones who know exactly how to get right into port. And so we do take the refuge. It's actually um, an attitude. The attitude that I do take the Dhamma as refuge. Why? Because I can. I know how to get in. I do know, without a doubt, that this is the path. I know what the path is and know what the path is not. So, uh, basically, the way that it states in, uh, in the suttas, this, this is actually in one of the suttas, in, in the Saba Asaba Sutra number two. And in uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, he's got verse numbers in it, and it's verse 11. And uh, he translates the words as wise attention wise attention when we pay wise attention to the four noble truths when we pay wise attention to this is suffering this is uh the cause of the suffering when we pay wise attention to um what does it feel like to be free from dissatisfaction and when when we pay really deep and wise attention to the eightfold noble path by doing this it says there that three fetters are eliminated and then they list them as personality view doubt and adherence to right rules and rituals i mean this is right there in the sutras but the most important part of it is is that it means that you have to actually practice the eightfold noble path you actually have to make those changes yourself in order to be able to get out and through all of that, those levels of doubt so that you could see clearly that third better is knowledge and vision about this is the way I'm going to be living my life now. No doubt about it.
1: Yeah, this this perspective has solved a lot of problems for me that I've had in my practice for a long time. I I had my first kind of big you know experience that people have you know when that gets you on this path that when i was 15 and i i I called myself wandering seeker you know and then just today i i realized that like at that now that i'm no longer practicing dissatisfaction i'm practicing satisfaction i should you know rename myself like you know wandering (laughs) non-seeker Because that it's 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 non-seeking. You know, the seeking, the seeking is 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 just another form of craving. And um, you mentioned this to me when I said that when I sit, my mind still wanders. And you said, well, that's just an indication that your mind is still looking for something. I thought to myself, okay, that's that's my primary issue. Is I'm I'm in this constant state of seeking. And. so, so the reminder that I'm using is just remember to be satisfied now, you know, um, mm-hmm. and for me that I feel like that kind of gets the whole like old path. Working all at once, um, and then the mind moves straight into that state of satisfaction.
0: hmm. One of the things that almost every student asks when we get to that state is what's next. And when <laughs> when I hear the students say that, that actually indicates that you're not there yet, because mm-hmm. when you get there, you don't have that question anymore about what's next, because you've arrived. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's sort of like uh, you want to take an airplane from, oh, two different cities, Mexico City to Paris or whatever like that. And so you go all the way through getting on the plane, flying, and all of that. And when you land, now the question is, well, what's next? And the answer to that is, well, it's not more flying because you've already arrived at where you were going. Or another example of that is the Pilgrim's Progress, which is an old book out in the Middle Ages. And the idea is is that people would go on pilgrimage, mainly from Europe to the Holy Lands way back when. Mm -hmm. And the point was, is that once the pilgrim gets to the holy place, what is he going to do? Well, most pilgrims that I know of are going to say, what's next? They're going to pack up their bag and go back on a journey to get to yet another holy site, because, I mean, the Holy (laughs) Lands is full of holy sites. And the pilgrim winds up spending very little time in the holy place, and most of the time in traffic on the road going from one holy place to the next and so this is why we go around asking that question what's next and the answer to that obviously is this is it stop Mm -hmm. looking for more the whole point is is that we're practicing becoming satisfied with the way things are and we need to do that enough to where it sinks into a really really deep level But while we're satisfied, Mm -hmm. if we keep having thoughts of being dissatisfied, like what's next? I've got the first John and now what do I do for the second, the third, and the fourth? Well, man...